0: Church, if I were to ask you to define the word future, what is the first thing that you might think about? On a personal level, you might think about what you're planning on doing later on this week or this afternoon, maybe plans you've made, trips you're going to take, vacations. Maybe you are thinking about the future in the sense that you're wondering if you have enough money to retire on one day, or maybe you're thinking about the future of our country, things like that. All right, let's change it up just a little bit. I want, now I want you to think about the word hope. You might use this word in the context of something like this. I sure hope this humidity eases up a bit. Amen? <laughs> I hope it doesn't rain because I really need to cut the grass and it's raining right now. Or something like this, maybe. I hope I don't become woke. I'm, ki- I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Don't let the pink shirt fool you, okay? I'm not going to become woke. Well, future and hope, two words that we use all the time in contexts like these, and that's not the way I want you to think about these two words this morning. I want you to change that, get it out of your mind, forget that I even said it, because I want to focus on the future and hope that we have if you're a believer because you have the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jeremiah 29, 10 through 13 is starting to get at the idea of what I'm talking about. Listen as I read this text. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah the prophet says this, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years have been completed in Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. This is part of the message that God gave to Jeremiah when the nation of Israel was hauled off into captivity in Babylon. They probably thought they were being forsaken, but God had other plans, didn't He? God wanted his people to know that even though they were going to go into captivity for 70 years, he was going to be with them, and he encouraged them by telling them that at the end of that 70-year period of time, he was going to visit them, fulfill his good word to them, and bring them back to this place. And what place is the Lord talking about here? He's talking about Israel, the land of Israel. He then says that the captives would call upon him, come and pray to him, which they did, And the Lord would listen to them, which he did, and he tells them that they will seek for him and they will find him when they search for him with all their heart. You know what happened? It turned out exactly the way God said it would. God gave his people, his special people, a future to look forward to and a real hope. In other words, not the kind of hope that we think about, but a certainty. This is going to happen. It can't help but happen because God has said it. So this is the use of the word hope in a way that we don't normally think about it. They had, this had to have been a tremendous encouragement to them, and it should be to us as well. John Owen, from several hundred years ago, said this, Vague ideas of heaven will not encourage us to persevere through all dangers and difficulties. Vague ideas will not excite us in a spiritual refreshing hope. But when we meditate on future glories as we ought, then the grace of hope will thrive and will be of inestimable benefit in making us spiritually minded. And that's my objective today <clears throat> um, that I hope to show you from Romans 11, to show you that all of God's people still have a very real and future tangible hope that we, it should be a tremendous source of refreshing and blessing to us now and for the rest of our lives. God is faithful. God's word will not fail. He holds the future. He knows the future. And he has the power to fulfill his word to those who belong to him. Do you belong to him? Are you a Christian this morning? Well, if you're not, keep this in the back of your mind as we jump right into this passage of scripture. We're going to get to 11, Romans 11, 1, as James read, but I think it's helpful To understand the context of Romans 11, where the Apostle Paul really begins his thoughts about his kinsmen according to the flesh, that is Israel, in Romans 9. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to reference Romans 9 and 10. Romans 9 starts off by Paul telling the Roman church audience, and by us, by extension us, that there is an incredible sorrow and grief over the fact that Israel, for the most part, has rejected Christ. Their lost condition breaks his heart. He mentions that the Israelites are the ones to whom belong the adoption as sons of glory, the covenants and the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises whose are the fathers. That's a wonderful phrase. We'll talk about that more in a minute. The promises whose are the fathers. And from whom is the Messiah according to the flesh, God blessed forever or until the ages. That little phrase there in Romans 9, unto the ages, this is talking about eternally. This is, this is not just for this time. This is forever. This is, this is something that's going to happen that has eternal implications. Then he says in verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor does he, notice that he does not say that the church has or somehow will become Israel. He doesn't say that. He says that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise. Those are the ones who are regarded as descendants. The the children of promise. Just like it said in the Old Testament. So why did this happen? Verse 930 says this. The Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, or a a law that promised righteousness, they did not arrive at that law because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, by works. That's how they were trying to obtain righteousness. Then Paul, a Jew, quotes the Old Testament, and after saying they stumbled over the stumbling stone, he tells us what that means. Jesus was the stumbling stone and the rock of offense, and they rejected him. Chapter 10 explains more about the nature of the gospel and how a person can be made right with God through Christ. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that whoever believes in Jesus will never be disappointed or put to shame now or in the future. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile in reference to how a person is made right with God. God is a source of blessing and riches to all who will call upon his name in faith. The Bible says this over and over again. The, Jew- the Jewish people didn't exercise sufficient faith because they refused to listen to God's word. Romans 9.17 says that they wouldn't believe God's word as it related to Christ, their Messiah. They were disobedient to the Word of God. They were disobedient to the truth. Good reminder for us, isn't it, as Christians, we should not be disobedient to the truth. Paul quotes both Moses and Isaiah, representing the law and the prophets, to show how God has warned Israel over and over again about their failure to obey and listen to God. Paul explains that his Israelite brothers, according to the flesh, on the whole have never believed as they should have. Isaiah asked the rhetorical question when he asked, Lord, who has believed our report? We're going to pick up on that thought in just a moment in Romans 11. But now we see in, but for now, we see it in 921. Clearly, God has stretched out his hands all day long to a disobedient, stubborn, and obstinate people. Okay, sounds bad, right? Yeah, but not, not all is lost. Why? Because it is, these, are promises, he, these are promises, and God is a promise-keeping God. He is patient, and he loves his people. There is a future, and there is a hope. Now we've seen the buildup. Now Paul is going to make his point in a very emphatic way. Romans 11.1, 1, as James read earlier, I say then, God has not rejected or cast aside his people, has he? Paul answers his own question. May it never be. No. God has absolutely not rejected his people. And this is expressed by Paul in the clearest, strongest language possible. He says, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Verse 2. Couldn't be any clearer. Paul is just getting warmed up though. In verse 3, then quotes 1 Kings 19, 10, and 14, and he says this. This is the account. I'm going to read what it's talking about first. This is the account where Jezebel and Ahab were after Elijah to kill him, and the prophet got so upset and fearful that he cries out to God and says of the Jewish leadership, Lord, they have killed thy prophets. They have torn down mine altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. And what is the divine response? God says that I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. It's obvious that Elijah had underestimated God's power and purposes. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, And in a similar way, there has come to be at the present time a remnant, a little small part of fabric, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. I want to read you a little uh, account of a man that... This happened about a quarter of a century ago, maybe 40 years ago now. There was a Russian Jew of great learning named Joseph Rabinowitz. He was sent to Palestine from Russia by the Jews to buy land for them. He went to Jerusalem. One day, he went up to the Mount of Olives to rest. Someone had told him that that he should take a New Testament as the best guidebook about Jerusalem. The Christ he had known was the Christ of the Greek and Roman churches, who were his persecutors and persecutors of his people. But as he read the New Testament, he became acquainted with the real Christ of whom the Old Testament scriptures had foretold, and his heart grew warm. He looked off toward Calvary and thought, why is it that my people are persecuted and cast out? And his conviction gave the answer, it must be because we have put to death our Messiah. He lifted up his eyes to the Messiah and said, my Lord and my God. He came down from the mount a disciple the Lord Jesus Christ. He went home to Russia and erected a synagogue for the Jews and over the door of which it is written this. Let all the house of Israel know that the Lord hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified both Lord and Christ. And of course he's quoting Acts chapter 2 verse 36. It was one of the many he was one of the many present remnant of Israel which proves conclusively and better than words that God has not cast away his people. So I think that's a very helpful thing to think about as we consider this whole thing. Nationally they have, but God is still saving Jewish people just like he's saving Gentile people. And how? By grace through faith in Christ. You see, Israel was seeking as a nation, they were seeking salvation and redemption by their own religious performance and law-keeping. Just like billions of people are doing today, or attempting to do. Israel was not pleasing to God because they were not seeking a way that pleased God. Paul tells the Romans that what Israel was seeking for, they did not obtain. But those who were chosen obtained righteousness, and the rest were hardened. But even though many were lost, some were chosen by God. God has always saved some ethnic Jews, and he is still doing that today. But they, like us, are that little remnant. Isn't that amazing? Once again, in Romans 11:11, Paul asks the same question again. They did not all stumble so as to fall. And right here, the word fall means an unretrievable spiritual ruin. They did not all stumble so as to fall that way, did they? And once again, he says, no, may it never be. He hasn't, he hasn't forsaken them. Somehow, in God's economy of doing things... He is now in this church age using the transgression of his people as a means to an unexpected and unanticipated end. David, if we, look at, um, if we look at chapter 11, verse 7, he says this, What then? That which Israel is seeking for, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. And then he quotes David, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day, verse 9. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their back forever. What is in the world is he talking about? Basically, he's saying God is judging them. He's giving them blindness. And when it says bend their back, it's like some you've seen people sometimes when they when they're blind, they bend over like this because they're looking. they're looking for the way because they can't see the way. And he's basically saying, because of their rejection, this is what God has done. And then he says in verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall irretrievably, did they? No. But see, this is God's doing. It doesn't seem fair maybe to us, but this is the way God works sometimes. Sometimes we have things in our life that don't seem fair too. Paul tells us that he is making much of his ministry, which was primarily to Gentiles. Why does he do that? Well, in order to move some of his own people, the Jews, to jealousy, that some of those people would be saved, and some of them were saved. I'm so glad he adds verse 15, for if there, that is Israel's rejection, be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? What a great promise. What a future and a hope the nation of Israel has and some of the people in the nation of Israel. And then in verse 16, he amplifies his thoughts on this. He uses a lump of dough and some olive trees to do it. Remember, Paul is a biblical scholar. He's going to use two analogies to make his point, And they're actually talking about the same thing. Listen to this. With regard to the dough, He's referring back to when the Jewish people, after they had come out of uh, Egypt to the land of promise and going into the land of promise, I should say, they were to offer a first fruits offering to the Lord. It literally could have been any portion of food, whether it would be animal or grain, as those first portions were set aside for the priest who represented God. God was telling them to set aside or count it as holy a small portion of these things that were going to be offered to him, and to, to acknowledge that he was the source of their blessing. And he says this if that little piece of dough was holy and set apart, then the whole loaf of bread was set apart and holy. As one well known Bible teacher explains it, another and somewhat reverse analogy is given using the figure of the tree and the vine. If the first fruits, Likely the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If they were holy and set apart and consecrated to the Lord, so were all of their descendants. You see it? The bread and the, and the tree and the olive vine. Therefore, for God to forsake Israel now would be for him to renege on his promises to those patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is something that his holy character just cannot do. He would not do that. It wouldn't be something that God could ever do. He wouldn't allow it. In order to be faithful to his own word, the Lord must provide a future salvation for Israel. God has not yet completely fulfilled his covenant promise to Abraham or the countless reiterations of the promise to redeem and restore Abraham's descendants. If the root, that is Abraham and the other patriarchs, are holy or set apart, then the branches, their descendants, are holy and set apart too. They were divinely called and set apart before the foundation of the world and God's work with those branches will not be completed until they bear the spiritual fruit that he intends to produce in and through them until the end of the age when they actually become the holy people that he intended them to be. So to be clear, both the dough and the root are representing the same thing. The first piece of dough and the root are referring to the promise to the Jewish patriarchs. A promise to them was a promise to the olive tree, the Jewish people, or the nation of Israel. Then in verse 17, Paul begins the thought about some of the branches of the natural olive tree being broken off. Logically, again, the natural olive tree represents Israel, and the wild olive tree represents the rest of us, the Gentiles. He says that some of the branches of the natural olive tree were broken off so that you might be grafted in. Why did God break some of them off? That's a really good question, isn't it? Well, I'll give you the answer. Paul tells us what it is because of unbelief. How to avoid that? Paul says to the church, stand by your faith. He tells the Roman church, do not be conceited. Do not... Be conceited or try to figure all of this out. But fear. Take it seriously. Consider what God has done with them. And then he says, God's severity fell on those who wouldn't believe, and his kindness came to those who weren't even asking or seeking for it. Us. But in saying this, he still gives Israel and his chosen people hope. Verse 23 says, And they, that is Israel, also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted back in. For God is able to graft them in again. This is amazing. One day in the future, all of this will come full circle. But when is it going to happen? There are a number of references to this, when it will happen. But the clearest one that I could find is in Zechariah chapter 12, Verses 10 through 14. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it to you. It says this. When is it going to happen for the nation of Israel? It says this. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look upon me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the weeping over a firstborn. Now, keep in mind, this was written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. They will mourn for him. It's obvious. He's talking about the the Messiah. And then he goes on and says In that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadrium in the plain of Megiddo, and the land will mourn every family by itself. It's a national mourning. And this is not an obscure verse by itself either. Revelation 1:17 basically says the same thing. "Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those whom pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him." Even so, Amen. All the mourning and sorrow takes place when Jesus returns in the second coming at the end of the 70th week of Daniel, when the nation of Israel finally realizes what they have done. And what is that? They rejected and killed their Messiah. The 70th week of Daniel is yet to take place. There have been 69 weeks. There's one week left. And by week, I mean seven-year period. When Jesus returns, that's the second coming. That's the end of the 70th week of Daniel. Zechariah 13 verse 1 says this, "...in that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem." For sin and for impurity. Notice that all this language is referring to Israel. God is not finished with his people. And just to make sure we don't miss the idea, Paul says in verse 24 of chapter 11, "...for if you were cut off from what was by nature a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree..." how much more shall these who are the natural branches be grafted back in to their own olive tree? You see this? You see how the whole thing is going in logical order? So as we round the bend to finish this part, let's look at 1125. He says this, For I do not want you, brethren, you Roman Gentiles, to be uninformed or ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation. Okay, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. until all the Gentiles who are going to ever be saved, until that happens, this partial happening is God's idea. He's doing this with Israel. But then he says in verse 26 something incredible. And thus all Israel will be saved just as it is written. Then Paul quotes the Old Testament, Isaiah 59, 20, as well as Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 37. It says this, the deliverer will come from Zion or to Zion. The deliverer will come from or to Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Hallelujah. He mentioned Zion in that verse. In case you don't know, Zion is the hill in Jerusalem on which the city of David was built. It's kind of a small part of of Jerusalem. But it's also used as a term for the city of Jerusalem itself. And just to make sure we don't miss it, sometimes Zion is used as a reference for the nation of Israel. So that's the term Zion. A, A deliverer will come to Zion. These are prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled. And these verses speak of a national salvation for Israel. Now, there are quite a few important words and phrases in the last, verse, last two verses here. In verses 28 and 29, and these are super important. Let's see them. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. There it is again. God made a promise to those patriarchs, and he will not break his word to them. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. All of these things can't be changed no matter how bad the Jewish people were or are. God didn't change his mind about Israel in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. And he hasn't forgotten them just because he scattered them all over the world. Verse 30 and 31 keeps making the point. For just as you, you Roman Gentiles, were once disobedient to God... But now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, that is Israel's. So these Israel are now to, so these Israel are now have been shown in disobedience in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also be shown mercy. So God is showing mercy to us, but one day He's going to bring that mercy back to the national Israel. For God has shut up all in disobedience, that he might show mercy to all, both Gentiles and Jews. We have a merciful God, don't we? Consider this about mercy and grace. Think about this. Grace gives you what you don't deserve, and mercy withholds from you that which you do deserve. Have you thought about that lately? It makes you think about the goodness and grace and mercy of God. Grace gives you what you don't deserve, And mercy withholds from you that which you do deserve or what you've earned. Verse 33 and 35. After all of this, Paul can hardly contain himself. And he bursts forth in praise. And it says this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Obviously, we don't understand fully the mind of the Lord. We can't give him counsel. Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? No one could have expected what Paul has just described. No human being could have come up with such an incredible plan. And the reason Paul knows all of this is because of what Paul said. He got firsthand knowledge from Jesus himself. We saw this last Sunday when our brother Kenneth preached to us, and he mentioned this. This is one of those things where, you know, you read the Bible, and then you think, oh, yeah, I've got that, I've got that. I don't think I ever even saw this till last week, okay, when Kenneth brought this up. But he says this in Acts 23, verse 11. In that verse, it says that Jesus stood by Paul and told him to take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Paul got his, his knowledge right straight from the lips of Jesus himself. And that's amazing. And so, Paul could speak with absolute authority regarding the future because of the unique revelation that Christ had given to him personally. We would do well to treat this passage here in Romans 11 with the same reverence and belief that Paul received in Acts. Paul knew what he was talking about because what he heard he knew was true. He didn't receive his information secondhand. And all of this should just make us marvel and glorify God and his ways. Paul's words of high praise just seem to spew from Paul like a tremendous geyser when he says this in verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever or unto the ages. Amen. To him be glory to the ages This is exactly what's going to happen in the future as we eternally marvel at God and his plans for his people. Have you ever thought about that? One day we'll be in eternity and we're going to look back on all that has happened to us and all that's gone on in this world and we're going to marvel at the goodness and the faithfulness and the grace of God. We will never get over that even when there is no more time, even because eternity doesn't have time, does it? There's no day or night. There's no clock on the wall like we have here. That's how marvelous all of this is. And let me just point out one more thing in this verse that you might miss. The word forever could literally translated unto the ages. Notice it doesn't say, until the end. There are ages to come in the future. Your future. My future. We have a future and a hope. Particularly if you're a Christian. You have a very real future and hope. You have a tremendous promises that God has made to you that he's not going to fail to keep. The Bible continually references Jew and Gentile, two different people. Both have a part to play in God's amazing plan for human history. Grace Bible, you and I have a future and a hope. Our Lord has made ironclad promises to us that he will keep. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe in me also. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus promised to never leave us or forsake us. Jesus is that way that he's speaking about. And a little later, Jesus says something that, uh, that we really didn't see coming. He sent the Holy Spirit to every believer to seal us for the day of our ultimate salvation. And between now and then, to lead us and comfort us, to teach us and to guide us in our lives. So folks, let's think about this. Let's not grieve that Holy Spirit inside of us. Don't grieve Him. How do you not grieve the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian? You obey God. You listen to His Word, right? We need to take His Word seriously. It applies to us as well. You and I have a future and a hope because we know that God's word, the Bible, is forever settled in heaven. Not one of the smallest strokes or dashes will even pass away. It's all going to come true. We know that when we hold it, we have the truth right in our hands. Don't neglect that. If you believe God when he tells you things from his word, this brings him glory. Can I say that again? If you believe God when he tells you things from his word, this brings glory to God. And I believe this is one of the major reasons that we exist, to bring God glory. We don't just exist for ourselves. We exist to love and serve others and also God. Living this way brings you joy and peace and helps you to overcome sin. When we do sin, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Live in this truth and you will find tremendous courage to face the future with hope God has told us how to be happy, contented, and fulfilled in this life. Are you listening? God has revealed history to us. That's amazing. He did that for the people in the Old Testament. He's doing that to us, for us now. He has revealed so much of the future, but he hasn't revealed all of it. But what he has revealed is important, and we need to know that. God blesses us with good health. Sometimes he even allows bad health. I know people who can't wait to die to go to be with Jesus. Do you know anybody like that? (laughs) I see some heads nodding. It's true. Think about that. Think about how if you don't feel that way now, God could work in your life to such a degree that when you got the bad diagnosis, you could say, I am looking forward to that. I know people that are like that. And it's amazing. Those people have a future and a hope and they know it. Don't wait to the end of your life to know that. God did all of this because of his great love for his creation and his people. He sent his one and only son to earth that he created. He is very involved in our lives and in our world. Nothing escapes his notice. There are angels. You you believe in angels, right? There are angels helping us. We don't see them, but they're there. Jesus lives, and because he does, we have a future and a hope. Because of Jesus, we have A future that will not disappoint us. What a tremendous thing to think about. Our future is not going to disappoint us. God's love compelled him to provide the ultimate sacrifice for sins. Through and because of Christ, we are counted as having righteousness. We're not righteous, but we're counted that way. That's pretty good. Pretty helpful thing to think about. Because of what Jesus did our righteous because of what Jesus did our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. We have a future and a hope because God is no longer angry with us. He has adopted us into his family. By grace through faith in Christ. The salvation that he provides is one and done. We are eternally secure. We can't lose it. If you have it you can't lose it. He I'll never leave you or forsake you. God holds you by his righteous right hand and underneath are the everlasting arms. How much more secure could you be? We are kept by his power. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ once we are found in him. Because heaven is a real place, we have a future and a hope, and we're going there. We should rejoice in God because of This future certainty. Our hope is in Christ and all that He has said and promised. Our hope is in Christ because of His person and work. Our hope is in Christ because He has overcome death, hell, and the grave. We have a future and a hope because we can go to Him in prayer anytime and cast all of our burdens on Him and He won't even mind. We can stay there for a long time and tell Him all of our burdens. I would encourage you to do that. Don't carry your burdens, take them to Christ. Tell him about it. You'll be amazed at how much better you feel after you do that. Why does it work that way? I don't know. (laughs) I just know that it does. Just try it. We have a future. We have a hope. May God provide us all the strength and grace to live this out to his honor and glory. Let's pray. Oh, God, we thank you for your precious word this morning. Thank you for Romans. Uh, Lord, I'm not sure we've ever visited Romans 11. Maybe we have, but it's been a long time. And I just pray that you would help us to grasp these truths and to appreciate them and to understand that you are this kind of a God, that you save people that are wicked and you save people that are sinful and you save people that would murder you and even condemn you. Some of those Pharisees that we're casting their lot against Jesus. God, later, you saved them. So Lord, we thank you for all of these things. We thank you for reminding us this morning you've made to the patriarchs and to us. Lord, our salvation is secure and we give you praise this morning for all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen.